With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A series that has been long running on my channel is true crime and unsolved mysteries. I've always had an affinity for wanting to learn more and try to see if we can't put the pieces together. So that's what the series is all about. Sharing lesser known stories that you may not have heard about in hopes that we can maybe jog up somebody's memory to help further these cases. Today joining me is my good friend Let's Read from the Let's Read podcast. If you enjoy his voice, be sure to check out his channel and podcast. You can find links in the description. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, whether it's a true crime story or something different, please be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net. Alright, without further ado, be sure to hit that like button, subscribe if you're new, and get ready for these creepy and downright strange true crime horror stories that'll keep you awake tonight. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends. Today we will look at a different kind of case than I would usually investigate. I often cover mysteries and cold topics, and while this case isn't 100% unsolved, there are aspects of this case that remain open. Not long ago, I was live streaming and had a viewer call in and share their personal scary story. A viewer named Hannah called and shared a tragic story of her childhood friend Brendan Gonzalez and his untimely end. Now, with that out of the way, Let's get into the disturbing case of Brendan Gonzalez. Brendan Gonzalez was just four years old at the time of his strange disappearance. He was last seen somewhere between 9 a.m. and 9.15 a.m. on January 6th of 2003 by his father, Ivan Hank, in Plattsmouth, Nebraska. To note, Ivan Hank and Rebecca Gonzalez, the mother of Brendan, were not together at the time and were not married. I noticed a few discrepancies with this detail over a few articles. At the time, Rebecca had custody of Brendan. Now, the timeline gets muddy here and hard to piece together. From what I can understand, some time later that day, police were actively looking for a robbery suspect and had spotted Ivan Hank driving somewhat erratically. For whatever reason, instead of pulling over, Ivan decided to lead the police on a high-speed chase, which only ended when he smashed his vehicle into a guardrail and rolled the car, totaling it. He was driving a 1997 Hyundai Accent, which he stole from Rebecca without her knowledge. Rebecca would be notified about the incident, and then would mention that she had not seen her son Brendan since that morning. Ivan was questioned about his son's whereabouts and initially claimed he left him with Rebecca. He was charged with willful reckless driving, 
which can have varying consequences depending on your state. For the state of Nebraska, where this occurred, willful reckless driving is a Class 3 misdemeanor. Officials and family members conducted extensive searches but ultimately failed to find Brendan anywhere. This is where the case begins to turn from concerning to Dyer. Brendan Gonzalez's blood was found in the trunk of the car Ivan had wrecked. Officials found more of Brendan's blood on the car seat and even the garage of his home. While Ivan wasn't an while Ivan wasn't initially the official's focus, he remained the primary suspect. Officials mentioned they suspected up to four people. I mean, just look at Ivan's background. He has an extensive criminal history, including drug abuse, mental instability, and even violent crimes. On April 29, 2003, Ivan Hank was sentenced to one year in jail for his police chase. Ivan would shock the world, though, using this spotlight to proclaim he had murdered Brendan. He claimed he did it with a kitchen knife in Rebecca's garage, which would explain the blood found there. Ivan would detail that he thought Brendan was the Antichrist, and he had seen the number 666 on Brendan's forehead. Ivan took the police to a garbage bin in Bellevue, Nebraska. He claimed this is where he disposed of his son's body. Tests revealed Brendan's blood indeed was found in the garbage bin. Around 50 officials did their best to search the local landfill, but were met with little to nothing. Air support was called in and tracking dogs and officials equipped with horses also explored surrounding areas. The search would eventually move within the city limits into Rebecca Gonzalez's property. Ivan Hank would later give officials a full confession of the murder in jail. Ivan claimed he had decapitated Brendan with a kitchen knife in Rebecca's garage. He stole Rebecca's car and dumped the body in a garbage bin in Bellevue. A bit later that year, in August, Ivan Hank was charged with the murder of four-year-old Brendan. Police continued searching for any sign of Brendan's remains but still have not found anything. Ivan Hank attempted suicide while serving his sentence in jail. He was unsuccessful in his attempt, though. Not long after his trial in 2005, Ivan pleaded guilty to save himself from a death sentence. Instead, he was given life in prison. Unfortunately, Brendan's body has never been found. Further searches for his remains are not likely due to the area his body most likely ended up in. With no one being able to 100% say Brendan Gonzalez is dead, but I think it's evident at this point, details provided and the amount of blood found by officials, foul play is heavily suspected in this case. As we can see, this case is shrouded in many question marks. There seemed to be so much information left out on the timeline of events here. I wish we had more context at the start of the situation. In 2009, Ivan Hank appealed his case and claimed the police intentionally fabricated evidence in the case and claimed he had ineffective assistance from his counsel. This appeal was rejected in court, though. Ivan would insist that the crime scene investigator David Cafode planted blood evidence in a dumpster where Ivan claimed he had placed the boy's body. David Cafode has been convicted of growing evidence in an unrelated double... David Cafode has been convicted of planting evidence in an unrelated double murder case. This doesn't change my mind about Ivan Hank's guilt, but is an exciting detail. Over the years, Rebecca Gonzalez, now Rebecca Fleming, has tried numerous times to start searches for her son's remains. She has been shot down practically every time, being told the investigation has been exhausted and officials would need further evidence to begin anything again. Many have doubted her son is in the landfill, though, but Rebecca... She stands strong that she believes he is in there somewhere. The Sarpy County landfill is being shut down, and considering this, Rebecca has done her best to petition the land to be turned into a park in memorial of Brendan. Deputy Sarpy County Administrator Scott Bullock said the ground just isn't suitable for a garden. 
Not to worry, though. Sarpy County Board member Jim Warren said he's working to find out what can be done to memorialize Brendan. Still, options might be restricted because of the State Department environmental quality requirements at the site. On the evening of October 5th of 2018, 26-year-old Terrence Woods Jr. was working as a TV production assistant on the first season of the Discovery Channel documentary series, Gold Rush, Dave Turin's Lost Mine. He was part of a 12-man team from London-based production company Raw TV who followed host Dave Turin as he explored abandoned mine shafts in the western United States. Given that most of these derelict mines were located in hilly or mountainous regions, some of Gold Rush's filming locations provided incredible views of the surrounding areas. And Terence took a great deal of pleasure in sharing such incredible vistas with his friends via his Instagram account. One picture depicted a fir forest under ceiling of steel-gray clouds with a babbling brook flowing through it. Captioned simply, Idaho. The photograph looked like the kind of scene that Bob Ross would paint. Yet as the evening unfolded, the events that transpired were proved to be anything but relaxing. On the contrary, something truly haunting was about to unfold. As the shoot wrapped up in an area known as Oro Grande, Terence told some of his fellow crew members that he needed to take a leak and would be back in a few minutes. But just moments later, associate producer Simon G. found Terence's walkie-talkie simply lying in the dirt. Simon wasn't necessarily alarmed by this right away and assumed that Terence had merely dropped it while looking for a place to pee. But then when he followed in the direction that Terence had apparently walked off in, he spotted something deeply disturbing. It was Terence, running down a steep slope at a speed which Simon later described as being faster than he had ever seen anyone run before. Seconds later, Simon watched Terence disappear into a thicket of greenery, then he quickly raised the alarm among his co-workers. Terence's colleagues tore after him at similarly high speeds but were unable to catch sight of him, and just as concerning was the fact that many of the team had suffered cuts and scrapes from the wild and inhospitable forest. If they'd been torn up in such a way while traveling at a fairly measured speeds, I could only imagine the kind of injuries that Terence had suffered. Yet the one prevailing question wasn't so much where Terence had run off to, it was what had caused him to become so frightened. Terence's fellow crew members reported him missing to the Idaho County Sheriff's Office at exactly 6.41pm, but due to the darkness that was quickly blanketing the area, the cops didn't begin their search for him until the following morning. His co-workers were incensed by the lack of action, but the county sheriff assured them that it was unlikely that Terrence had gotten far during the night. The rough terrain meant any progress he was likely to make would be slowed considerably, and on top of that, they were going to compensate for lost time by throwing everything they had into the search for him. At first light on October 6th, search teams consisting of foot patrols, ATV riders, and sniffer dog teams were joined by helicopters equipped with heat-sensitive cameras, each spiraling out in concentric rings that cast a wide net over the Oro Grande region. It seemed impossible for Terence to avoid such an intensive search, yet somehow, not a single trace of him was found, and just six days into the operation, 
The search was called off after the county sheriff declared that there was no way that Terrence could be in the same area he disappeared from. For all intent and purpose, Terrence Woods Jr. had dropped off the face of the earth, never to be seen again. Those that knew him found the story of his disappearance to be completely mystifying. The original Idaho County Sheriff's Office report stated that Terrence was right in the middle of a mental health crisis at the time he vanished, yet his family and friends stated that they had talked to him extensively in the weeks prior, and aside from missing home a little, he seemed perfectly normal. His family then tried to contact various members of the production crew, as well as Oro Grande locals, but found only one that was willing to talk to them. While well-meaning, this local was of very little help and said that it was impossible to determine what kind of mental state Terrence was in during the brief time they'd interacted with him. It got to the point where Terrence's parents, Valerie and Terrence Sr., believed that Raw TV was actually trying to cover up the truth of their son's disappearance. Each asserted that Terrence was a responsible, intelligent young man who wouldn't just run away unless he'd been completely terrified by something. On the other hand, Raw TV denied hiding or obscuring any detail of Terrence's mindset or behavior, with the company spokesman saying that there is nothing to support such allegations and that Terrence had not been intimidated or mistreated by any of the Oro Grande locals or his co-workers. However, they did state that Terrence's conduct on that set had not been up to his usual standards and that he often seemed distracted during his work. When pressed on the matter... Raw TV CEO Jolie Feather described Woods' disappearance as heartbreaking, adding that the whole company was praying that their friend and co-worker would be safely recovered. She was also quick to note that the Idaho County Sheriff's Office had commended Raw TV for their complete cooperation, as well as their ongoing support for the investigation. During his youth, Terrence had spent five years in the English capital of London, firstly as a student at the American International University and working on shows like The Voice UK. He had made many friends during his time in England, and when word of his disappearance reached them, they were nothing short of devastated. One former colleague described him as the most pure-hearted person she'd ever met, that Terence was calm and gentle, and that she began screaming and crying when she received the bad news. It just didn't make sense, she later said. You know if somebody's going through something, or they're a stressful person, or whatever... You're like, okay, cool, the person took off because of mental health or whatever it might be. For Terrence to run off, it's very bad. Disturbingly, this ex-colleague also added that there was something of a toxic work culture at Raw TV, something she herself experienced during her time there, and that on several occasions, she was made to feel quite uncomfortable with what she referred to as somewhat boyish working environment. Raw TV was quick to deny these claims, saying they did the utmost to make their employees feel welcome and comfortable, and their former employees' claims were not reflective of the company's policies. Another former colleague of Terrence's, Rochelle Newman, said that a full investigation should be conducted to discover exactly what caused him to become so frightened. We need a timeline of events from when Terrence arrived in Idaho until they said he disappeared. We need a full investigation into the crew, she said. If it was me who was filming and traveling for work, I would want the same to be done. Rochelle suggested that such an investigation should be entirely civilian-led and urged the Idaho County Sheriff's Office to offer their full support and cooperation. 
This led to the establishment of an Instagram account entitled at Fine Terrence Woods, which quickly gained upwards of a thousand followers, all of whom yearned for clarity regarding what happened on the night he went missing. We kept getting conflicting information, said Terrence's mother. One minute the police department are saying the case is closed and the next they're saying it's still active. This confusion seems to have stemmed from a law enforcement press release which stated that Terrence's case is open but not active, and very little comfort seems to have been taken in the idea that the sheriff's department would follow up on any new information, and that there is no specific amount of time a missing person case remains active. It remains open as long as the person is missing. Given the complete lack of new information pertaining to Terrence's disappearance, a number of theories have emerged regarding what might have happened or what he might have seen that caused him to become so terrified. The most prevalent seems to involve accusations of racism among the crew, as well as among the local Oro Grande citizenry. Many of Terence's nearest and dearest have noted that he was the only African-American member of the production crew, and that someone might have taken a distinct disliking to his presence either on the team or in the area in general. It's been suggested that someone took advantage of the fact that Terence went off to use the bathroom and attempted to ambush or lynch him during the brief window that he was away from the crew. Some believe the fact that his radio was found abandoned is evidence that whoever grabbed him made sure to disarm him of any ability to effectively call for assistance. But if this is the case, why didn't Terrence call for help at any point, even if he was free to do so? It makes sense that whoever grabbed him might cover his mouth, robbing Terrence of his chance to scream for help. But if that was the case, at some point he managed to break free and make a run for it, so why not scream for help then? Again, it's possible there's an explanation for this, albeit a very disturbing one, that the whole production crew wanted Terrence dead, and had told him this either overtly or covertly. If that was the case, it makes sense that Terrence would simply just make a run for it without stopping, looking back, or calling for help. But why wait for an actual attack to occur before getting out of there? In so many words, some have accused the production company, especially associate producer Simon G, of fabricating the story of Terrence running at full pelt in order to cover up that they killed him before dumping his body somewhere it could never be found. Yet the likelihood of the entire crew remaining tight-lipped about such an injustice is extremely slim, and if that was the case, surely the extensive search using cadaver dogs would have at least turned something up. Another arguably more plausible theory is that Terence had a run-in with some kind of predatory animal, one which stalked him, chased him, and killed him before dragging his dead body somewhere discreet in order to consume it. This might explain why the search teams were unable to locate or recover any of his remains during their intensive and extensive search of the area in which he went missing. Perhaps the cadaver dog teams were simply unlucky in their search, or a stronger odor masked the scent and prevented the dogs from distinguishing the distinct stench of human remains. But anyone who knows anything about a dog's mind-boggling powerful olfactory sense will tell you how extremely unlikely that is. And so, we're faced with the possibility that Terence either completely extricated himself from the area and managed to do so in almost pitch darkness, or that something otherworldly occurred to ensure that neither he nor his remains would ever be found. There are dozens of less plausible explanations which blame more supernatural hazards for Terence's disappearance, 
and although the shroud of mystery makes them more and more worthy of consideration, I don't believe it'll serve his memory well to explore them when much more conventional police work might still yield fruitful results. But still, ruminating on what could scare a man so badly that he'd go tearing off through the woods, injuring himself horribly in the process, is unsettling, to say the least. Back home in Maryland, Terence's father finds each new day just as difficult as the one which took his son away. I don't want to watch movies with someone running through the woods because I think of my son, he told one media outlet. If I close my eyes, I see my son crying and yelling. Some nights I hear my son saying, Dad, Dad. I walk around the house and look at his room. Terence's parents still display photographs of him on their dresser, and one of his paintings hangs above their bedroom closet. The Dodge Charger Hemi, his parents bought for him still sits unused in the family driveway. Every so often, Terence Sr. runs the engine so that the battery won't run down, hoping that one day, Terence will return to finally drive it. But as each day passes, as each year rolls into the next, it seems less and less likely that Terence Woods Jr. will ever make it home. From time to time, I investigate cases centered around families. There seem to be many spouse-turned-killer cases out there. These cases uniquely intrigue me, for whatever reason. There seems to be something about a husband or a wife killing their spouse or even their children that makes me feel sick to my stomach. The very people you love and cherish more than anything in this world turning on you. How can someone go so far as to take the life of their lover and child? I will cover a case that fits this exact scenario. This case reminded me a lot of the Ann Dunlap case I covered not too long ago. This is the disturbing story of who killed Lacey Peterson. Before I jump right into this unfortunate crime and the sad and tragic details that accompany it, I feel it is essential that I share some information about who Lacey Peterson was. Lacey Denise Rocha, also known as Lacey Peterson, was born May 4, 1975 in Modesto, California. She was raised on her family's dairy farm in Escalon, California. Escalon is a small town with little more than 7,000 residents. Lacey spent much of her younger life working on the farm and enjoying gardening with her mother, something she continued to do throughout her life. Unfortunately, early on in Lacey's life, her parents got a divorce. Lacey moved with her mother to Modesto and visited her father on the weekend. Lacey was a very athletic teenager participating as a cheerleader in middle school and high school. Lacey would go on to study and major in ornamental horticulture, which for those who are not, which for those who are not familiar, is the agriculture of plants and how to apply them to our everyday lives. She studied at California Polytechnic State University, one of the only polytechnic universities in the state. Lacey often hung out at Pacific Cafe, where one of her friends worked. Here is where the story truly begins because it was at this cafe that Lacey would meet Scott Peterson. It was mid-1994, and Lacey had made the first move. She had given Scott her number and told her mother that same day that she'd likely met the man she would marry. Scott and Lacey began talking and going out on dates together. Their first date was a deep-sea fishing trip where apparently Lacey got very seasick. As the couple's relationship got more serious, the two began to set aside their dreams to create a life together. 
Scott put aside his professional golf ambitions, focused more on his reachable business paths, and after two years of dating, they moved in together. At the time, Scott was finishing his senior year of university, and Lacey was working in a nearby town called Prunedale. This seems to mark the start of Scott's extramarital affairs. Scott had at least two girlfriends on the side. It is unclear what the relationships were like, or who they were with. After Scott graduated, Scott and Lacey married in Avila Valley on August 9, 1997. The following year in June 1998, Lacey graduated with a bachelor's degree in agricultural business. Not long after this, the couple opened a sports bar called The Shack in San Luis Obispo. The company started slow but did eventually start booming on the weekends. The Petersons would sell The Shack and move back to Lacey's hometown of Modesto. They had purchased a beautiful three-bedroom bungalow house for around $177,000. Lacey would take a job as a part-time substitute teacher and Scott would take a job at Trade Corp USA, a newly founded American branch of a European fertilizer company. Scott made quite a comfortable living from this as well. Lacey's family and friends said she was the ideal housewife who always cooked, cleaned, or did something to help out around the house. When Lacey found out she was pregnant in 2002, it seemed to be a welcomed surprise by everyone. Lacey was set to give birth on February 16, 2003, and they were set to have a boy. The couple planned to name their son Connor. In November 2002, when Lacey was seven months pregnant, Scott met Amber Fry, a massage therapist in Fresno. Scott and Amber began having an affair. Amber was unaware of Scott's marriage and soon-to-be newborn child. Less than a month after this affair began, Lacey would seemingly vanish into thin air on a three-day weekend the couple spent together in Carmel, California, the week before Christmas. Carmel, from personal experience, is a lovely area. I recommend checking out the Point Lobos area if you ever get a chance. Aside from Scott Peterson, the last people known to have spoken with Lacey before she seemingly vanished was her sister, Amy Rocha, and her mother, Sharon Rocha. Now, I will try to create a timeline of her last known whereabout. On December 23, 2002, around 5.45 p.m., Lacey and Scott went to Amy Rocha's salon, where Scott had his hair cut. During this time, Amy claimed Scott offered to pick up a fruit basket for her that she had ordered since he would be playing golf in the area anyway. Scott seemed to want people to know he was playing golf on that day because, according to officials, he told multiple people that he would be doing so that day. Sharon called her daughter that night at 8.30 p.m. to have a talk with her. This would unknowingly be her last time she would ever speak to Lacey. Scott would go on to claim he had seen Lacey leaving the following day at about 9.30 a.m. He claimed he was golfing but quickly changed his story to fishing at the Berkeley Marina. According to Scott, Stacy was watching a cooking show while he was leaving. She was doing chores and preparing to walk the dog at a nearby park. At this point, Lacey would have been an eight and a half month. At this point, Lacey would have been eight and a half months pregnant. This would be the last official known whereabouts of Lacey. The next day, the neighbor came knocking as she found Peterson's dog, Mackenzie. This neighbor said she found the dog around 10:30 a.m. Another neighbor would come forward to say she saw Mackenzie at around 10.45 a.m. and was playing with his dog. An unknown person reported to the Modesto Bee that the dog was found with a muddy leash and was returned to Peterson's home. The neighbor who returned the dog claimed to see nothing out of the ordinary. Scott would return home from fishing and notice Lacey was gone and the dog in the backyard with a muddy leash. 
Instead of calling the police or loved ones to find out where his eight-and-a-half-month pregnant wife was, he decided to take a shower and wash his clothes as they were wet from fishing. Scott reported his wife missing only after waiting until 5 p.m. and calling his mother-in-law. Only then did Ron Gransky, Lacey's stepfather, call the police and inform them of his daughter's situation. When police arrived at the home, they were met with a strangely calm Scott Peterson. He didn't seem worried that his highly pregnant wife was potentially missing and in danger. It's not like Lacey was known to run out of the house unannounced, so that you would think something out of the norm like this would cause some sort of emotional response. Police found Lacey's purse and car keys hanging up in the closet, and the dining room table looked to be meticulously set for family dinner, assumably for the following night. There was one thing that a detective noticed that disturbed him, though. On the table, a phone book was open to a page with a full-page ad for a defense lawyer. Now, this could be a coincidence, but it is also fair to look at it with suspicion. As I mentioned, the police were off-put by how Scott seemed really calm. I know many people point out that everyone reacts differently in these situations, but we need to be a bit realistic with ourselves. If you had a baby due in two to three weeks and your pregnant wife was missing, you would quite undoubtedly be upset. Despite these weird feelings and Lacey's family thinking Scott was guilty from the start, hundreds of searchers volunteered to help find Lacey. Modesto police and firefighters searched along Dry Creek, which was the area Peterson's dog was found. A $25,000 initial reward was offered, and then increased to $250,000, and then once more to $500,000 for any information leading to Lacey's whereabouts. A candlelight vigil was held on December 30th to garner more attention about the case. Hundreds of posters, blue and yellow ribbons, and even a website were circulated around the area. According to the Wikipedia page on Lacey's case, upwards of 1,500 people volunteered to help pass out materials to help find Lacey and her unborn son. This is where things start to get sick. On the way to his missing wife's vigil, Scott called Amber Fry and made up some weird elaborate lie that he was on his way to France and was planning on being in Paris for New Year's Eve. He even gave her a fake European phone number that would just reroute to his current cell phone number. Scott said, You know, in my mind, we could be wonderful together for the rest of our lives. On this phone call, the next day Scott called Amber to worship how beautiful she was and tell her he was in Paris. Unknown to him, though, Amber had already sold him out to the police and turned into an informant. Every conversation they had was being recorded. About a week after Lacey had been reported missing, Amber found out about Scott's wife and other life. She mentioned her friend showed her a video of Scott asking for information about his wife's location on TV. When Amber confronted Scott about this, he tried to explain it away but wasn't making too much sense, saying things like, There are different kinds of loss, Amber, when being questioned about why he lied about the loss of his wife. Scott would go on to say Lacey was, in fact, alive and she was still in Modesto. This was a major bombshell. As I mentioned, Lacey's family was convinced from the start that he had something to do with her disappearance. Their suspicions and fears were only amplified when they saw Amber come forward on TV. An interesting quote I found after reading articles online about this investigation mentions, I saw more reaction out of Scott when he burned the goddamn chicken. I believe this is a quote from Lacey's cousin. I mention this because Scott did not begin to get emotional until he realized Amber was not okay with his lies. Scott tried his best to convince Amber that Lacey was aware of the affair and was okay with it. The claim had been heavily refuted by virtually everyone who knew Lacey, though. There is a famous sit-down interview with Scott, 
and Diane Sawyer, where he tries to double down on this point, but I am not sure anyone is buying it. In this interview, Scott would go on to claim his marriage was quoted as glorious, as well as other exciting choice words. On April 13, 2003, a couple walking their dog stumbled upon something grisly. They found a decomposing body, but the body they found was a surprisingly well-preserved body of a late-term male fetus. The body was discovered in a marshy area in the San Francisco Bay, just north of Berkeley, not too far from where Scott claimed to have been fishing. Upon a closer look, the fetus had its umbilical cord still attached and looked to have been torn and not cut or clamped as the standard practice would be. For whatever reason, a judge sealed off the autopsy results, but I was able to find an associated press source that revealed multiple loops of nylon tape had been found around the fetus's neck along with a nasty cut to the fetus's body. A day later, an unknown passerby was out for a walk when they found another body of a recently pregnant woman. She was wearing beige pants and a maternity bra. She was washed up on the rocky shoreline of the bay, roughly a mile or so where the fetus was discovered. The body was decomposed to the point of being nearly unrecognizable. The poor woman had been decapitated and her limbs were missing. A few days later, on April 18, 2003, DNA results determined the bodies found were of Lacey Peterson and her unborn son Connor. The autopsies reported that Connor's skin was not decomposed, but the right side of his body had been mutilated heavily, and the placenta and umbilical cord were not found. Lacey's cervix were intact, and the exact date of death could not be determined. Lacey looked to have suffered from a severe beating. She had two cracked ribs, but the coroner said she could not say exactly how they died. All eyes were on Scott Peterson at this point. Scott was arrested on April 18, 2003 near a golf course where he claimed to have been meeting his brother and father. His naturally dark brown hair had been suddenly dyed blonde. Oddly, his car was full of miscellaneous items which included around $15,000 in cash, a ton of survival gear, camping equipment, and several changes of clothes, four cell phones, two driver's license, one of which was his brother's, and funnily enough, a whopping 12 Viagra tablets. If this doesn't sound like someone trying to disappear and live off the grid, then I don't know what does. Scott's father, Lee Peterson, did mention Scott used his brother's ID to get a discount at the golf course and that Scott had begun to live in his car due to the media attention. Personally, from the reports, it seems his car was so full of stuff that it would be virtually impossible to live out of it, but I digress. Police saw this as an attempt to flee from the law. Three days later, on April 21, 2003, Scott was arraigned in the Stanislaus County Superior Court and was charged with two felony counts of murder with premeditation and exceptional circumstances. He, of course, pled not guilty and his trial was moved to San Mateo County due to the number of people in Stanislaus County having biased opinion. The trial began on June 1, 2004, and after many months of grueling practice and testimony, Scott was convicted of first-degree murder for his wife's death and second-degree murder for the end of his unborn child. Judge Alfred DeLucci gave Scott Peterson the death sentence, who was quoted as saying the murder of Lacey Peterson was cruel, uncaring, heartless, and callous. Luckily for Scott, California rarely follows through with the death penalty. In March 2019, the California government issued a moratorium for all 737 prisoners on the death row in California, including Peterson. Essentially, this postpones any executions until the governor's tenure is done. This seemingly doesn't carry much weight though as California hasn't gone through with one of these since 2006. 
There has been a ton of controversy surrounding this case. Like many other issues that gain national attention, there are conflicting beliefs about what actually happened. As I researched this story, I found an excellent article by the New York Post that broke down why Scott was found guilty. To start, the bodies were found only a mile from where Scott claimed to have been fishing. Scott was noted to have been smirking and smiling throughout the trial. Scott had told Amber Fry he had lost his wife two weeks before she went missing. He exclusively referred to his missing son as Lacey's baby and never his own. He took multiple trips to San Francisco Bay around the time the bodies were found. He had $15,000 and a passport was hidden in his car at the time of his arrest. His general lack of emotion or care for his wife's safety. Not all is lost, though, in this tragic story. Lacey and Connor Peterson's death led to the creation of a new law known as the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, also known as Lacey and Connor's Law. This act ensures that under federal law, any person who causes death or injury to an unborn child while in the commission of a crime upon a pregnant woman will be charged with a separate offense. In October 2005, a superior court judge denied Scott's right to collect a $250,000 life insurance policy. Under California state law, criminals may not profit from insurance policies. Instead, the money was given to Lacey's family, more specifically Lacey's mother, as she was the executor of her estate. In 2006, Sharon Rocha wrote a book for her daughter titled, For Lacey, A Mother's Story of Love, Loss, and Justice, which became a number one seller on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. Sadly, there has been no more closure as to what exactly happened to Lacey Peterson. Why was she killed? Why was she killed in such a violent way? What could have possibly caused Scott to do this? Why not just divorce and move on? There are so many unanswered questions that remain in this case. I hope Lacey and Connor are resting peacefully and Scott gets what's coming for him. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thanks for listening to these true crime horror stories. I know that these hit home for a lot of people because they're more real than the other stories we hear. Without that allegedly true tag, it's just so much more tangible. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to hit that like button. YouTube commonly suppresses this content because they don't like how quote-unquote violent it. It would really help the swamp grow, and I'd really appreciate it. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please be sure to give us a 5-star rating over there as it helps the swamp grow, and I'm very appreciative of it. If you're on the go and want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories, no matter where you are. You can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and pretty much anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you'd like to support the Swamp outside of all that, maybe check out the merch store. I've got cool t-shirts, hoodies, and hats. I'd love to see you guys wearing that. If you have a story that you'd like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net. I'm always looking for new, allegedly true, scary stories to share with everyone here in the swamp. Much love to my friend Let's Read from the Let's Read podcast for reading story number two. If you enjoyed his voice, be sure to subscribe. You can find a link to do so in the description. 
Be sure to join me over on Discord, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.